with me, please. Father, we confess that we have a speech problem. Lord, we talk too much to one another and not enough to you. And Lord, we just sang that we cry, holy, holy, holy is the lamb. And Lord, we just want to thank you. We come to praise you. We come to worship you because you indeed are the king. We bow our knee to you and to you alone. And so, Lord, we're asking that as we now wait for you, that you would minister to us. Lord, that you would feed us with your word. And that, Lord, that we would understand so much more about your insights into the reality of war. So, Lord, I pray that you'd help us open up our hearts and minds. Help us, Lord, to live the life that you called us to live as spiritual warriors. And we'll give you thanks and praise for what you will do here and now in Jesus' name. Well, we've all heard the expression, war is hell. Now, some of us here have experienced the military life. And some of us, within the sound of my voice, have actually experienced combat. And once a person sees and smells the realities of war, they never forget it. As many of you know, right after 9-11, as chaplain, I was deployed for about three weeks to the Pentagon to serve the people working at the hole that the plane left when it slammed into the building. I was there to pray for them, to offer encouragement, to stand with grieving families who lost loved ones in the attack, and at times entering the room. Now, what is the room? It was where people from a number of federal agencies were literally trying to piece together bodies of people who were burned up and torn apart by the plane that hit the building. The smell in the room was something I will never forget. And I'm sure that the people who were working in that place day after day, they will never forget as well. Now we say war is hell because sanctioned killings of imagers of God with massive firepower is the most despicable thing we can think of. We live in an evil world with evil people. Evil spiritual forces of wickedness are at work trying to thwart the good purposes of God. And the tragedy, though, is that war has been with us from the earliest days, and sometime after Yahweh, in all his goodness, created the universe. Self-will was exercised, and the door of evil opened, and sin entered Yahweh's good world, closely followed by death and destruction. Now, tragically, sometimes with rivers of tears, as we heard Greg mention today, and heaving sobs, we look at the, the reality of evil manifested in our own lives and on the national level. More times than we care to acknowledge, we see the reality of evil and subsequently the necessity of war. But we have gotten sort of used to things, though, haven't we? So when was the last time you gave serious thought to Russia's invasion of Ukraine? All the lives lost, all the devastation, and we think, well, what about the gas prices that have been hiked because of this? Or, or what about the fertilizer that's become scarce and now our food prices are going to raise? So where is God in all of this? Where was God at the attack of 9-11? Or in the war to end all wars? Or in the Great War? And not to mention Korea or Vietnam? Or the Civil War 
and what started off for us revolutionary, Lord? The answer to those questions, where God has always been, always on his throne, seated there. He's never abdicated it. He's never, never out of control of anything. Isn't that true? But the big question that so many, and maybe even some of us sometimes ask is this. If God is all good, then why doesn't he stop all war? And since we don't hear an answer of thunder from the sky like we're hearing some thunder now, we try to answer it ourselves. And how many have placed their faith in atheism over this very question because they answer it like this. If God is good, then there's only two possible answers that he doesn't do anything about evil and about war. If God is good and war exists, then either he can do something about it, but chooses not to. And that makes him a monster. Or he wants to do something about evil. You know, God weeps over evil as well, but he is unable, and therefore God is not all-powerful. And when people embrace either conclusion, they turn away and they turn their backs on the one who really is in control of all things, even when people go to war. In our passage for today, we're going to cover all of Deuteronomy chapter 21 and a few verses from chapter 22. And today we're going to see God's holiness in times of war. Now, before we go through these passages, I want to offer a very brief but big picture view of how God, who is holy, is involved in the unfortunate reality of war. And sometimes he wages it. For the first time, God waged war on evil was with the flood. You remember that story, don't you? It was worldwide, uh, contrary to what many theologians believe. Everything that breathed, except for a tiny remnant on board that ark, perished. Think God was angry at evil? The next time God waged war on evil was when he rained down destruction on several cities. Two of them are known as Sodom and Gomorrah. The commitment these men had to homosexual behavior consumed them in these towns. And after God waged war there, no one was left. If it had been for the Lord's merciful intervention, even Lot and his daughters would have died as well. Now we know what happened with Mrs. Lot. She turned back and she perished, became a pillar of salt. And I think of where we are as a nation in relation to homosexuality. June is so-called Pride Month, and pride is being used by these folks in the worst sense of the word. As First Lady Jill Biden defined it recently, she said, pride stands for defiance. Now, in full disclosure, she did finish her sentence this way, in defiance of injustice. Now, we're going to talk about injustice in a little bit. But now, if we compare where the nation is in relationship to homosexuality and where Sodom and Gomorrah, how can we not say that we are on the verge and very ripe for God to wage war with us? God hates homosexuality. He calls it an abomination. And those who practice it will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is not a popular view among people who are even in the church. But I would rather stand under the plain teaching of God's word and be condemned by the world than to be accepted by the world and condemned by God on the day that we all stand before him. Who's with me on this? 
holy God has directly waged war on evil. And when Christ returns, he will do it again. But between the Sodom incident and Christ's return, we understand the Lord using one or more nations to wage war against other nations as his instrument of judgment upon their wickedness. God humbled Egypt, and the Lord set his people free. And the why and when God did this was in part measure to use his people as instruments to punish the evil of other nations. If we remember in Genesis chapter 15, God predicted that Abraham and his descendants would be enslaved for 400 years. He said he would bring them out into the land of promise and to use Israel as an army to cleanse God's land of seven pagan nations of their wickedness and sin. Now fast forward several centuries. After Israel's civil war, it divided up into two groups, 10 nations, 10 northern tribes called Israel, and then you have the southern tribe of Judah and Benjamin. Now the northern tribes, they have been corrupt for many years. And so what did the Lord do to punish them? He raised up the nation of Assyria, and he scattered them three sheets to the wind. But we might say that Assyria was a little bit too eager, too aggressive, too, and too zealous to accomplish God's will to punish Israel. And so because of their overzealousness and their destruction, he raised up Babylon to punish Assyria. And when Babylon was in power, God used her to punish Judah for their wickedness. See, Nebuchadnezzar brought God's people into captivity. But due to their arrogance, led by Nebuchadnezzar, God raised up Medo-Persia to punish Babylon. God used Medo-Persia in his ways for, for his purposes because it was the Persian king Cyrus who sent Judah back to God's promised land because the Lord still had more work to do with his people. And then God raised up the Grecian Empire to punish the evil of Medo-Persia. And then he raised up Rome to punish Greece. You see the pattern here? And under Rome, God worked in such a way to bring about, as Paul said, at the right time, the Messiah's birth. And cutting-edge technology of the day allowed the gospel to be quickly disseminated into all parts of the known world. So in the big picture of war, here's what we can say. That God is holy. God is sovereign. And he raises up nations and puts down others, all in accordance with his character, his plans, and his purposes. Because God is holy, and evil being the reality that it is, that's why we have Deuteronomy chapter 20 in front of us today. We live in a fallen world, and God and his people are involved in the most horrific of activities. Imagers of God killing fellow imagers on a multinational level. All of this under the Lord's holy and sovereign hand. But war will not always be with us. Isn't that great to hear? There's going to come a time when there won't be any more war. When Christ comes back, he will destroy his enemies in a one-day battle with just one word. Hallelujah. Isn't that great? He's going to do this. And then the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 2, 1 to 4, will come true. And so if you would, please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. And we're going to see this fantastic prophecy. And it will be fulfilled before our very eyes. When the Lord Jesus comes back after the rapture and after the resurrection of the righteous, we are going to be there 
And we're going to see this. It's all going to come to fruition. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many peoples shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and he shall decide disputes for many peoples and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. Hallelujah. And no wonder the prophet pleads with his people in the light of this tremendous promise. Having recorded these words in verse five, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. God is good, is he not? And so with that as an introduction, let's get into Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 1 to 20, and also chapter 21, verses 10 to 14. And so because God is holy in times of war, we're going to discover how he prepares his soldiers to fight in verses 1 to 19. I'm sorry, verses 1 to 9. Then in verses 10 to 20, and also in chapter 21, verses 10 to 14, Since God is holy in times of war, we will discover that Yahweh sets the rules of engagement, how his people are to wage war. So let's read verse 1 of Deuteronomy chapter 20. When you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Moses tells his would-be soldiers that there will be times when he will call them to wage war outside of the promised land. But the battles will not be a cakewalk. No battle is, is it? At times, the enemy's capabilities will dwarf that of Israel's. And when they do, they are to obey and to remember. They're to obey as in not allowing themselves to be so scared that their fear will cripple them. And by the way, you know it's okay to be nervous when you're in front of something that's scary, right? But it's not okay to let that fear cripple us from doing what's right. Now, if I could kind of go back in the day and and I was there and I was listening to Moses say these words, I would probably say something like this. But Moses, how can this be? Overwhelming odds? Little Israel? How can we defeat enemies greater and stronger than us, especially if they've got more firepower than we do? Well, here's Moses' answer. Refresh your faith in the one who is with you. And who is he? It's Yahweh. He is the one who delivered you out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Have you forgotten him already? Now, this implies two things. First, the battles the Lord will send Israel to engage in will be holy battles. They're to be waged for his purposes. However, he has no qualms withholding his presence and his power when Israel lives in rebellion against him. And we've seen this over and over again, right, in scriptures, if we read carefully. Now, most everybody knows about the Battle of Jericho, right? Anybody not have heard about the Battle of Jericho? It was a massive defeat, wasn't it? The walls came down. Israel devastated the Jerichoites. But now, what was the second battle that they waged? It's the Battle of Ai. 
This battle should have been no problem. Should have been small potatoes. They should have wiped them out immediately. However, there was a small but huge problem. There was sin in the camp. A soldier named Achan disobeyed the Lord in the battle of Jericho. He took a few things for himself that the Lord forbid him to take. And therefore, Israel suffered defeat at Ai, a very small place. God withdrew his power and soldiers died. But when the sin of Achan was dealt with, Israel returned to Ai and then God gave them a massive victory. Moses reminds them that the Lord who saved them to show himself glorious among the nations is the same Lord who will be with them in the battle to defeat their enemies. Moses tells there would be soldiers to have confidence in him. And it seems, though, that they needed constant encouragement to have confidence in the Lord. For why was Israel on the bank of the Jordan River at that time listening to Moses and not enjoying the promised land? They should have been there about 38 years prior to this. Why were they there? What prevented them from entering the promised land decades prior to that? It was their fear. And that's the second implication. Moses said to them, don't be afraid. Here it comes. God told them to take the land of promise decades earlier. But then they saw what they were up against. Remember, they went to go and spy it out. There were all kinds of big guys in the land. There were a lot of firepower. And they came back and they made reports. We were like grasshoppers in their sight. And so we were. And so began their 40 years delay of entering the land of promise. In short, I can hear Moses say to the people, don't be like you were before. Don't be afraid of your enemies. God will fight for you and you will win. He will be with you. And the lesson we can walk away at this juncture is simply this, that sin has a way of causing amnesia in our relationship to the Lord. Isn't that right? If we live in disobedience, And in walking away from the Lord, we tend to forget who the Lord is. We tend to forget who we are. And we tend to forget what the Lord has done to save us. But as we walk in obedience to him and his ways, our faith in his provision and His in his strength grows. And with that reminder, ringing in the minds of all of Israel's would-be soldiers, Moses now gives them further instruction. Instruction to ready the best army, humanly speaking, that Israel can muster. Now, this first set of instructions that God gives his soldiers to fight his holy battles is found in verses 2 to 4 of Deuteronomy 20. And when you draw near to the battle, the priest shall come forward and speak to the people and shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you're drawing near for battle against your enemies. Let not your heart faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you the victory. Now this priest is to function as a military chaplain. I kind of like that. He offers words of encouragement. And once again, the soldiers are to cling to the truth. Resist the temptation to allow fear to cripple you. I'm reminded of the three I wills that God through Isaiah told the people when they were in dire straits. In Isaiah 41, 10, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. Well, listen to this. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. The Lord promised it. Now it's for God's people to go and claim it 
And after the priest speaks spiritual strength to the soldiers, then the officers step forward, and they're to find out what, if anything, that might hinder these soldiers from doing their job to engage in holy battle that the Lord gave them to do. What would be these possible hindrances? What could distract a would-be soldier from peak performance? In a word, problems back home. (laughs) Now, all of you who have been deployed military and who have had families at home, you know what Moses is talking about here. Now, the standard joke is that the car or the washing machine always breaks within the first couple of days the husband is out there deployment. And Kitty goes, yes, exactly right. (laughs) And so the standard practice among many military wives is that they just don't tell the husband what's going on. Or they tell little lies to make him think everything is okay. Ask us how we know. (laughs) And for the would-be soldiers in this army, it has to do with fitness for deployment. And the call goes out to the assembled troops. Have any of you just built a house but haven't lived in it yet? Has anybody recently planted a vineyard but haven't gathered the fruit? Have any of you become betrothed to your wife and not consummated the marriage? All of you in these categories, you are exempt from service. You can go home now. Bye. Now the message here is single-minded focus. Nothing is to distract the soldier. And one misstep, when the soldier is facing down the enemy, it could spell his demise. And then what would happen to his legacy, especially with his betrothed wife? See, legacy, building a legacy was the name of the game in Israel. Because there is life after war. War is to serve as a temporary but necessary thing to do at times. But if a soldier of Israel dies because his mind is not focused on killing his enemy, then he possibly could die. But speaking of distraction, the officers now address another issue. Even though the chaplain spoke words of encouragement to not be afraid, even though Moses told the people to not be afraid, there still may be men in no position to fight. Some of them may be living in fear, and they just can't shake it. You ever experienced that or ever know anybody like that? I know us men, the men, we don't do that, right? But the officers now address it head on in verse 8. Anybody who is faint-hearted, the idea here is tender or coddled or weak, go home. Your low morale will cause the hearts of your fellow soldiers to melt just like your heart is melted. In other words, faint-heartedness is contagious. Well, I don't know about you, but if I was sitting there or standing there listening to this officer say it that way, I think I would be too faint-hearted to raise my hand about being faint-hearted. But today, tragically, we have an increasingly weak military. And this approach definitely would not be acceptable today. Hey, if you're weak, Go home. How many would go home? But the bottom line is that every soldier needs to have a strengthened, loyal heart to Yahweh, undistracted from the things of this life. And this will give God's holy soldiers the victory. And that's solid truth for God's spiritual warriors as well, even in our day. Do you agree? Paul tells Timothy to endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. 
not allowing anything to get in the way of fulfilling the mission the Lord gave him to do. And so what about you? What issues in your life distract you from carrying on with the mission that the Lord has given you? See, it doesn't take much, does it, to veer us away from having a single-minded devotion to the Lord. And it really comes down to choices, doesn't it? We wake up in the morning, we got a choice of, to do the Lord's work or to do our own stuff. Isn't that right? So what choices do you consistently make that keep you on the path of single-mindedness as you follow him? And by the same token, what choices do you find yourself consistently making which distract you from staying on the path of single-mindedness to the Lord? You know, Paul, as he was sharing his heart with Philippians, one thing I do, I don't dabble at a hundred things. I do one thing. A single heart to carry on the mission the Lord has given us. May we pray that becomes true in our lives on a consistent basis. Now, the holy God through Moses gave instruction to prepare his soldiers spiritually and mentally. Let's now look at the Lord's rules of engagement. He wants his people to use to glorify him in battle. And these are found in verses 10 to 20 and also in chapter 21, verses 10 to 14. When you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace, shalom to it. And if it responds to you peaceably and it opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor for you and shall serve you. But if it makes no peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall put all its males to the sword. But the women and the little ones, the livestock and everything else in the city, all its spoil you shall take as plunder for yourselves. And you shall enjoy the spoil of your enemies, which the Lord your God has given you. Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, outside the land of promise, which are not cities of the nations here. So the first rule of engagement, offer peace first. Before Israel starts attacking, they were to make their intentions known with this. Shalom is what they were to offer the enemy. Now, though it can mean simply an absence of war, shalom also carries the idea like completeness or harmony or tranquility between relationships. But now the enemy behind the walls, in the city, the leaders, they now have a genuine but difficult decision to make. They have a choice of two, either become Israel's servants, slaves, or to fight. If they were to become Israel's slaves, then at least their lives would be spared. It's a good thing, correct? Well, in Israel's case, perhaps it was. As we've already seen in Deuteronomy, the Lord told Israel how to treat others, especially the sojourner and the foreigner and, and those folks like that, since they themselves were slaves at one point. They have both the personal experience and God's commands to guide them. And so it would seem that living as servants under Israel's rule would be better than living as servants under pagan rulership, like they probably were already. But going on from living one's own life one day, only to be living under rulership of foreigners the next day, is unthinkable for the average person. Think about if we were invaded. What would that be like? See, this is an invasion of Israel to this city. And life from that day on would indeed be different. Consequently, many would rather sacrifice themselves to maintain their way of life than to live under the rule of another government. 
And so they fight. And this is where Moses' rules of engagement regarding taking a city comes in. They're to besiege it. Israel was to put a city on lockdown, not allowing anything in or out. And when food or supplies dwindle and run out, then the people would turn on one another. And all the while, Israel is now at work building ramps to get to their walls or to their gates, then also breaking in their walls. And with a weakened defense due to no food, they would then have little strength to resist their enemies. In other words, Israel was to soften the people up so that they would surrender to them. And then when Israel captures the city, all the males were to be put to death. But everything else was to be taken for Israel's benefit, to include taking care of the many widows and orphans that are now in their midst. Now, speaking of widows, the Lord gave his soldiers an option, either take care of them or marry them. In the next chapter, verse uh, 22, verse 10 to 14, Moses tells them that if a soldier sees a woman who is desirable, he may take her to be his wife. And when the city gets captured, all the women become eligible for marriage. Why? Because they are now either widows or they lack someone to take care of them because all the males are now dead. But he must treat her humanely. He must allow her to grieve for a full month over the loss of her family. She's to shave her head, cut her fingernails, and dress into uh, garments that are appropriate for mourning. And after the month of mourning, she is to be the wife of the soldier. Now, in verses 19 and 20, we see another rule of engagement. Israel was to follow when taking the city very far from you. Of all things, this rule of engagement had to do with taking care of trees surrounding the land, the city that was to be besieged. Any fruit-bearing tree was off limits to be cut down and to be used, whether actual fruit trees or nut-producing trees. Israel was not to cut these trees down in order to make weapons of war against the city. I see a couple lessons here. First, it was another reminder that there is life after war. War is temporary. Life is permanent. In essence, Moses seemed to say that the fruit-bearing trees are food sources. Don't get rid of what the Lord has naturally provided just so that you can have a pragmatic military victory. Second, the Lord told us to take care of the planet. From the get-go, he told us this. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. And he's never rescinded that command. However, we're not to be, though, as one person put it, environmentalist wackos. Think climate change fanatics. But with that said, we are to exercise true wisdom and common sense when it comes to taking care of the planet, using the resources God has given us, being stewards of those things. And though war kills people and breaks things, it's not God's way to devastate everything for the sake of gaining military victory. I think of what we in our country have traditionally done after we defeated our enemies. We've gone back there and we've helped build their lives. It's the same idea here. Once again, there is life after war. And so these are the rules of engagement that Yahweh through Moses gave Israel regarding all the places outside the land of promise. Now, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this, but it seems to me that we may be under a siege ourselves of sorts. What were we told two years ago? Lock down the country for the sake of flattening the COVID curve. Then we were told, slow the spread. And then the rhetoric went to stopping the spread. 
And as we're aware, the cure indeed has become worse than the disease. Kids' education has been greatly set back in large measure because masks are on the faces. Depression resulting in higher suicide rates have become the norm now. And for many reasons, supplies are not being allowed into our country or we're not being allowed to use the resources we already have. It's beginning to take the toll on us. And we've seen the stats, haven't we? Currently, inflation is about 9%. 9% inflation. Gas prices cost over 5 bucks a gallon, and diesel is even higher. Now, where's the baby formula? Where can we find fertilizer? You know, some of this may be due to Russia's uh, invasion of Ukraine. But the question for us is, are we actually under a siege ourselves? There's yet another rule of engagement and warfare in this chapter. It's a reminder that Moses has given many times so far in Deuteronomy. And the first group that Yahweh's holy soldiers is to engage in will be the battle in their own backyard. Seven nations who are wicked, they occupy the promised land. And they're to be completely destroyed. Not one person is to remain alive, whether old or young, whether male or female, or even young kids. Everything that breathes is to be killed. What would we call that? Genocide at God's command. Now, we talked about this before as to why this is so. And Moses reminds them of the reason why it is in verses 17 and 18 of chapter 20. You shall devote them to complete destruction as the Lord your God has commanded so that they may not teach you according to all their abominable practices they have done for their gods. And so you sin against the Lord your God. See, Israel was in an exclusive relationship with Yahweh. Not one person is to remain out of the seven nations. The wickedness of these nations would lure Israel away from the Lord and they would go after pagan gods. Like a cancer, every last cell was to be removed, lest the cancer return with a vengeance. So what's this genocidal action about? Israel was to give everything they had in order to maintain an exclusive relationship with the Lord. This is holy war. No rival religions or the people who practiced them were to remain in the land that the Lord promised to give them. This was the first order of business in Israel. It was ugly, but this is the way it's supposed to be. God said, take the land, cleanse it, make it a habitation fit for Yahweh and his people to dwell together. It will be years later that King David would describe this sort of thing in Psalm 15.1. And he asked the question, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tents? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? What a question. Great question, isn't it, for God's people? And David spends the rest of the psalm answering these questions about the kind of person who can fellowship with the Lord. And the point is that God's holiness requires his people to be holy in order to experience the profound privilege of dwelling with the Lord on his holy hill. And cleansing the land for Israel is part of what this means. No rivals in our relationship with holy God. And now it's application. And the applications ought to be obvious. Yahweh, who is holy, remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. Isn't that right? The Lord, as warrior, continues to call his people to engage in battle. And only now, it's not just a select few soldiers. 
every one of us who know Christ, and more importantly, who Christ knows, we have been enlisted in his army. I mentioned last week that Jesus Christ is the Lord of all. He's the Lord over all. He rules and he reigns now. But presently, in his kingdom, there are innumerable pockets of resistance against his authority. It's just a matter of time, though, until they're subdued under his feet. So what are these pockets? These resistors against the authority of the king? Let me list some for you. For starters, there's that rival religion called Islam. There is rampant corruption at every level of every government body worldwide. And we have a hopelessly biased media and wicked entertainment of all kinds to serve a particular agenda. The God-hating religion called Marxism is another enemy that's infiltrating our schools, the government, and the church. And it's being done under the guise of the word justice. As I see it, let me give you a simple way of knowing whether Marxism is being promoted in the conversation. Whenever we hear the word justice used with a descriptor, we know that it's Marxism being promoted. Descriptors like social justice, racial justice, economic justice, healthcare justice. That's all Marxism. Just in case you didn't know, the goal of Marxism is to eliminate private property. And in my opinion, the only reason why the United States has not already become the socialist states of America is because of our governmental system, flawed as it is. If it wasn't for, on the human level, a couple of courageous senators who refused to do away with the filibuster, we would be Marxist right now. That and the fact that we as private citizens have millions of weapons and we have trillions of rounds of ammunition. And on the human level, because we can defend ourselves and our property, we are keeping Marxism at bay. But ultimately, who is keeping Marxism at bay right now? It's the Lord. Another major enemy that's threatened to take over our world, it has been described in the colorful language of this, pelvic issues. And what are the pelvic issues of our day? In a nutshell, all things related to sexual deviance that God hates. Think transgender, think abortion, think homosexuality, etc., etc., etc. Deep compromise in the church is another major enemy we face. Let me give you two examples of this. First, the Southern Baptist Convention. It's the largest Protestant denomination in the U.S. Leadership at the highest levels are morally compromised. The leadership is actually, when he was pastoring, this individual plagiarized on a continual basis, messages whole cloth, didn't give the person who he copied these things from any credit at all. Recently, critical race theory, part of Marxist ideology, has become, in their words, to be used by the Southern Baptists, a viable tool to accurately access our culture. They are in trouble. And by the way, the Southern Baptist Convention started their annual meeting today, goes on for the next three days. We need to pray. There are conservative men who want to take it into a proper direction. Let's pray for this, that God's will be done. What was the third largest denomination in our country? The United Methodist Church just had a split. One splinter group is called the Liberation Methodist Connection. Now, I'm not going to uh, dignify uh, their mission statement by reading it, but you can go look it up, and it is horrific. It's not for the faint of heart, I can tell you right now. But in a word, it's total 
apostasy from the Christian church. And even in the current United Methodist denomination, there are homosexual affirming churches. One example is where in celebration of Pride Month, an associate pastor of a congregation of about 250 dressed in drag preached a message. And then when still dressed that way, he and his female senior pastor blasphemed the communion table and served the Lord's Supper. This happened last week. Praise the Lord, though, for a new Methodist denomination, the Global Methodist Church, solid, orthodox in their foundations, and many former United Methodist churches have begun to flock there. I praise God. May there be many more following that trend. And given the manifold enemies in our world today, what are we as God's holy soldiers to do? Gain and maintain a single-minded focus on the things of God and also utilize the three weapons the Lord has given us. What are those? The word of God and prayer and living a holy life before the watching world. As I finish the message today, let me give you two quotes which reflect the seriousness of the hour. One has to do with the all-consuming commitment of the old-school communists who have relabeled themselves in our day as socialists or woke or progressives or what have you. And the other quote is attributed to Martin Luther. He's calling upon the Lord's holy soldiers to run to the battle where it is most intense. And this is my challenge for all of us. A member of the Communist Party wrote the following in a French newspaper years ago, so it's dated. He says, the gospel of Jesus Christ, get this, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a much more powerful weapon for the changing of society than is our communist doctrine. They admit this, but it is all the same. It is we who will beat you. We communists number but a handful, but you Christians are millions. We are vastly outnumbered. But if you remember the story of Gideon and his 300 men, you will understand why I'm right. We communists do not play with words. We give almost all of our free time and money to spread our message. But you Christians give hardly any time and any money. How can anyone believe in the supreme power of the gospel if you don't live it, if you sacrifice neither time nor money to advance it? Believe me, in the end, it is we who will win because we believe in our communist message. We are prepared to sacrifice everything, even our very lives for its cause. But you Christians are afraid to soil your hands. Let me quote now the quote that's attributed to Martin Luther. If I profess with the loudest voice and the clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God except that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing Christ. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on all the battlefield besides is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. May the Lord Jesus help us by his spirit to not flinch. Lord, you called us to war. Lord Jesus, you gave us your spirit, as we talked about last week at Pentecost. And you gave us your spirit to not just 
sit around being nice and sit around being right and, and, and all those things. You've called us to go to war, to attack the pockets of resistance in your kingdom. Because, Lord Jesus, you are the king. You are the Lord of all, over all, including us. Lord, today we heard a, a message that was hard-hitting. We heard a message about how you, Father, gave your people marching orders to go and wage war. And today, Lord, there are so many enemies at every side, on every front in our lives and in our culture and in our churches. And we're asking you, Lord Jesus, that you would help us, that you would strengthen us for the battle, that, Lord, we may stop playing games if we're playing games. Lord, that we may be fully committed to you, just like, Lord Jesus, you are fully committed to the Father. Lord, you did not play games, and your eyes were set on one thing, and that was the cross. Lord, you did not flinch when it came to giving your life for us so that you can show the world that you love the Father. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help us. Lord, if we need to repent of our sin, of apathy, I pray that we would do that. Lord, if we if we are guilty of just kind of playing around and just kind of acting Christian and acting religious, but we're really not really fully engaged, I pray that we would repent of that, that Lord Jesus, that we truly would be your soldiers and that we would be able to take the take it to the enemy and fight for you in your power, in your spirit, by using the weapons you've given us. I thank you, Lord Jesus, for this challenge. And I thank you, Holy Spirit, for giving us the power to do so. So now, Lord, I pray as we turn our attention to yet another couple more acts of worship, that we will do them with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, knowing, Lord, that you are with us and that you will never leave us or forsake us. Strengthen us, we pray in Jesus' name.